we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22. And the portion that we're looking at from Luke's gospel, it's not particularly long, eight or nine verses. We're going to start with verse 63. I'm going to point out a couple related scriptures as well during our our time together this evening. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 63 through 71, we see some things that, that took place at the time of the crucifixion. So turn there with me. And this is what it says in this portion of Scripture. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word together this evening, and we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture that that took place in the the lead up to the crucifixion of your Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, Father, we're just so grateful for the fact that we have the privilege to be able to meditate on these things this evening and to spend some time in fellowship with one another, worshiping you and even commemorating the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we partake of communion in just a little while. But Lord, we're grateful for this portion of your word. We pray that you'd help us to understand it, and we pray that by your grace we would grow from it as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the events leading up to Christ's crucifixion, When we read these things, when I go through these things, and I'm certain you feel the same way, you can't help but feel emotion when you go through these portions of Scripture, when you see these things that are described in the Gospels, and when we observe the kindness that Jesus showed to people, and we read about His compassion, and we see all throughout the Gospels all the different healing events that are recorded there, and then the things that Jesus taught along the way, and then the miracles that He did. I think those of us that, that have faith in Jesus Christ, we struggle, to under, we struggle to understand why anyone would look at him and desire to harm him in the midst of all that was going on there, let alone put him to death. But that's exactly what took place. And uh, we know that during that time that along with those who loved Jesus, there were many people during that era who despised him. They looked at him and they absolutely despised him. They, they hated the attention that he was getting. That was one of the big things that that certainly bothered some of the leaders at the time. They resented the ways that he would challenge their false teaching, and he would expose their hypocrisy. If you ever want to see some heated portions of the gospel, those are some of the the portions of the, the gospel accounts to really look at, because when Jesus would expose the hypocrisy of the religious leaders at the time, they despised him for it. And some of the hearts that that, that people had that, that were just absolutely hardened toward him, and, and you had groups of people that were just adamantly opposed to him being recognized 
as the Messiah because he didn't fit with their preconceived notions of what the Messiah would look like. All these things are going on. All these things are taking place at the time of the crucifixion. And it's interesting because the ways in which Jesus was treated, not only in his crucifixion, but also in the actions that that lead up to this event, these are things that are despicable and yet amazingly forgivable, which is kind of amazing when you really think about it, because there was nothing that happened to Jesus that surprised him. All of those things were, were very sad and torturous things that took place, but none of these things surprised him. Jesus knew these things were going to take place. In fact, when you look at the conversations that he had with the disciples leading up to these events, he told them ahead of time that this was all going to happen, and they really didn't want to hear it because it didn't even fit with what they were thinking. But he knew it was all going to take place, and so for the sake of the good that would come out of his suffering and for the sake of the good that would come out of his his death, he willingly endured this disrespect, he willingly endured this torment, and he did this for those that would one day come to know him. And he even did this for the good of those who were directly participating in it. So when you look at Christ on the cross and you think about the work that he accomplished there, you have Jesus in that moment atoning for our sin with the goal that we would be forgiven, with the goal that we would be cleansed of that sin. And this evening, as we just pause to take some time to think about this and all that Jesus endured, as we think about his crucifixion, as we think about the ways in which he was treated in the hours leading up to that experience, I want us to also keep in mind the fact that Jesus was willing to forgive his tormentors of all of their participation in this, which is an amazing thought to consider when you think about what he was enduring and even the lead up to it. And there's a variety of things that Jesus demonstrates through his life, through his actions, through his ministry, and even in his words during those those final moments prior to his crucifixion and even in the midst of the crucifixion, he demonstrates that he's willing to forgive people, people that have gone so far against him in a variety of ways. And one of the things that he shows us is that he's willing to forgive those who have mocked him. Look at an example of the mockery that we see here if you look at verse 63. Let me reread that in the verses right after it. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, I think think each of us would agree that mockery is not a pleasant thing to experience. Each of us could probably remember the experience of being mocked when we were children. Uh, It tends to be one of the primary activities, in fact, that children, or at least those that are on the immature side of life, tend to engage in. Also, tends to be one of Satan's go-to tactics that he likes to use against followers of Jesus Christ because he tries to either depress or discourage them. And so mockery is typically one of the things that Satan will use against the people of God. And as as Satan regularly mocks the Lord, he also makes a a point to, to personally mock the family of God, and inspire people to do that very thing. And leading up to the crucifixion here, we're told that Jesus was beaten by the men who were holding him here in custody, but they were also mocking him in the midst of this. And as they inflicted physical pain on him, they also attempted to hurt him emotionally. So you see a mix of that taking place in this context. And to be honest, you know, it kind of gives us a summary here of what's taking place, And I'm actually glad that much of what they said isn't recorded in Scripture. I'm actually glad to not know what they said. It tells us a little bit about what they said, but it says they said many other things 
as they were blaspheming him. There are many things that they said. We're just given a brief taste of it. And so I'm actually glad that that's not given to us so that we could have, you know, so we'd have to read those words. But unfortunately, Christ had to endure that and Christ had to listen to this. And they spoke, a, uh, they spoke to him in a profane way. They spoke to him in a blasphemous way. They just wanted to beat him down in every way possible. And related to this, let me also say that the things that we're entertained by tend to reveal a lot about our character. And sadly, one of the biggest indicators that our hearts are, are just enmeshed with sin or really struggling with sin is the fact that there is a part of humanity that can find the suffering of others entertaining or amusing. And so the Scripture tells us here that, they, that as they were holding Jesus in custody, they were amused by His suffering. As they're watching Him suffer, as they're inflicting suffering upon Him, this is something that's actually amusing to them, as they would strike Him and as they would mock Him. And uh, the Scripture here tells us that they tried to add to that humiliation by blindfolding Him and then hitting Him and then asking Him to prophesy which of them had done the striking. And so you just see this mockery, this whole tone of mockery, and their amusement with the suffering that Christ is enduring in this particular moment. But amazingly, this mockery and this despicable treatment, it's not beyond Christ's ability to forgive. Consider for a moment um, some of the counsel that Jesus gave us during the course of His Sermon on the Mount. And He gave us this counsel as something that was, that was useful and preparatory for us as we go about our day-to-day -day lives in this world as people who bear His name. So if you call yourself a follower of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, if you're somebody who is devoted to Christ with, with all your heart and you make that known to other people, there are obviously great and eternal benefits for doing so, but there are also things that you will endure that are very similar to the things that Christ has endured, the more vocal you are and the more apparent it is that you're a follower of Christ. And so Christ gives us some counsel. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So think of this lineage, as you and I at times probably deal with mockery, and I know that some of us gathered here have certainly endured that from time to time. I've experienced that from time to time. Well, think, of, think about the lineage of, of those of us you know, that, that have endured this throughout the centuries because of our affiliation, our association, our devotion to Christ. The prophets of old, because of their following of the Lord, they were mocked, they were ridiculed, they were looked at as, as just strange and different people in the midst of their culture. Then you look at the early believers, and then you look at Christ himself, and he says, listen, this is how it goes. And he says, blessed are you when, when others revile you, blessed are you when others persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Basically saying all sorts of falsehoods against you or all sorts of slander against you because you're associated with him. He's basically saying, look, I know it's not going to be pleasant. And by the way, he's also saying, you know, it's kind of interesting. He's not asking us to endure something that he didn't endure first, which is really interesting to think about. But he's saying, I, I know it's not pleasant, but I'm just telling you ahead of time so that you can think about it when it happens. Great is your reward in heaven. 
Think beyond the moment. Think beyond the moment when it happens. Don't you think that's exactly what Christ was doing right now in this particular context? Of course he was. The scripture tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured all of this. That he endured the cross, that he endured the shame and everything else that went along with it. So you have him here basically teaching us in a variety of ways through his actions, but also through the teaching that he had given earlier in his ministry, that we can rejoice when people mock us. We can rejoice when people speak evil against us because of our relationship with him. As he was treated, we could expect to be treated the same way. And when you look at these things, when you look at all these things that are surrounding this particular scripture and all the things going on right in this context, when you read of these events, what comes to your mind? Do you feel compassion for Christ when you see him enduring these things? Do you struggle to forgive those who may have mocked you at certain seasons of your past? When you think about the mockery maybe that you have endured? Do you ever feel a a twinge of regret uh, about maybe previous seasons of life, maybe before you knew Christ, when maybe you even mocked those that knew Christ? Isn't it interesting how Christ has changed our perspectives towards that mockery? You know, many of us probably even have a testimony where at one point we were the ones doing the mocking. And we think about it. We look at a portion of Scripture like this, and one of the things that reminds me is that Jesus can forgive those who mocked him, and he also offers us his power for us to be able to forgive those who have mocked us for his sake. But he was willing to forgive those who mocked him. And this is leading up to the crucifixion. For some of us, you know, I, I don't... When I, look at, when I look at daily life, when I think about what it looks like to be a follower of Christ in our culture, for many of us, the worst kind of persecution any of us will ever endure is basically mockery. In our context, at least as it is at present, for many of us, this is the worst we will ever endure, words that may come toward us. And do you know that that's sufficient for some people to just really be very, very quiet about their relationship with Christ, that that's sufficient for some people to say, you know what, I don't want to have to endure that, and then just quiet down, they don't say anything. And yet Christ looks at this and he says, listen, I'm going to show you what it's like to endure it, I'm going to show you what it's like to overcome it, and I'm going to remind you that you're going to be blessed if you endure the same because of your association with me. He's basically saying, I'm not denying that it's painful, I'm just telling you that there's good things that come out of it, and there's good things that come after it. And so Jesus is willing to forgive those who mock him, and it's I think a useful reminder for us in the midst of our context as well. There's something else that, it, that this scripture points out that I think is useful to notice. I think Jesus is willing to forgive those who once failed to believe him. Look at the example it gives us of those who failed to believe him. When you look at verse six, uh, 66 down to 68, it says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So you look at these events here. These are events that, as the Scripture describes them, these are events that took place on Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified. We're told here that at daybreak, the assembly of the elders, they gathered together. And this assembly was known as the Sanhedrin. It was the Supreme Council of the Jews, and it was led by the high priest, and it was, it was not considered lawful in that context to hold a trial at night. 
So what they would do in this particular context, they waited until day to facilitate their plans to condemn Jesus because it wasn't lawful to do it at night. So they wait till day has come, and then they, they continue the facilitation of their plan to condemn him. And even before looking at the details of these verses, let me mention something else that I find interesting in this passage that I think is still very common during our day. But in the era described in these verses and in our era, there are people who love to be considered religious. There are people that love to be considered holy, but their hearts are very far from the Lord. So externally, you would look at them, and you might make the assumption that, that they are walking with the Lord or that they're, that they're seeking the righteousness that the Lord supplies, and yet their heart is, is quite far from the Lord. And I think it could be very easy for us in any era to primarily focus on our external appearance or maybe the, the keeping of customs or the keeping of traditions without examining whether or not our hearts are actually sensitive to listening to the voice of God when He's actually speaking us or speaking to us. And that's the kind of dilemma that I see here in this particular passage. Here you have the very people who had been entrusted with important roles of spiritual leadership in the midst of their generation, and they had more faith in their hands, and they had more faith in their ability and more faith in their status than they actually had in the Lord who had created them and was attempting to speak to them. So their hearts were not in tune with the voice of God. And so you have God right in front of them, and they can't even recognize that that's their Messiah that so many of them have spoken about and preached about. Their spiritual eyes were blind to this reality. And they couldn't see that the Lord of all creation was right there bodily in front of them. But instead of believing in Jesus, the Scripture tells us here that they questioned Him. And they asked him to tell him if he was indeed the Christ. And keep in mind, their goal was not to actually listen and find out if that claim was valid. These were trap questions. These were the type of things that they were asking so that he would possibly say something that would give them the opportunity to have him executed. They wanted to trap him in something that he would say so that they could build a legal case against him. And one of the fascinating things that I always enjoy when I, I look through the Gospels and I see the things that Jesus does... I love observing the manner in which he would respond to those who hated him, because these people hated him. And in response to the question of the council as to whether or not he was the Christ, Jesus said this. He said, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Now, what do you suppose he meant by that? And by the way, why is he saying it that way? It's interesting when you look at the ways in which Jesus would speak to people that were confronting him in a variety of ways and trying to trap him, he would frequently say things or ask things to them that would be meant to provoke some introspection on their part. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. So they're wanting him to just say something that gives them the ammo that they need to be able to use it against him. He says, if I tell you, you're asking me if I'm the Christ, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. If I ask you, am I the Christ, you won't answer. Jesus was stating an obvious fact that, that he knew exactly what was going on in their hearts, that he knew what they were thinking. He knew, he knew what they were attempting to do. He knew what was going on in their minds. He knew that if he claimed that he was the Christ, they wouldn't believe. And based on the ways he had questioned them in previous encounters, he knew that they wouldn't bother to answer him if he started asking probing questions about their beliefs in this particular context. He knew that they would try and avoid that, just as they had done in other confrontations. But amazingly, you look at this sort of thing, 
And even this kind of hard-hearted disbelief is something that can be forgiven. As the Holy Spirit opens up eyes for people to be able to see that Jesus is who He says He is, and and our hard hearts melt within us, we can repent of our unbelief, and we we could lay hold of Christ's offer to save us. And you have Christ, even in the midst of all of this, speaking in such a way that He's still giving these people a way back. He is not shutting them off from the opportunity to trust in Him. And yet they rebel against Him, they ignore Him, they mock Him, they just look for a word that they could use against Him in a legal sense because they want Him out of their life. They want Him out of their presence. How would you answer if He asked you how you believed? Because this is the type of thing that He's asking them in this particular context. How would you testify? What would your response be if Christ directly asked you about your belief? There are many people in this world who will spend their entire lives with hearts hardened against Him. And usually what that comes down to is a preference to believe in ourselves more so than to believe in the one that's created us. When I look around our culture, I think sometimes Christians look at at our culture and, and say, you know... Our culture is becoming a godless culture. Is that an accurate statement? Is our culture becoming a godless culture? In one sense, you could say, yeah, it's becoming a a, a culture that is in opposition to the true and living God. And in another sense, you could say, oh, no, it's not becoming a godless culture. We're just replacing ourselves for the real God. Instead of the real God, we're choosing to worship ourselves, meaning what we do is we idolize our ideas We have such limited knowledge. We don't even know what's on the bottom of the ocean. In some respects, we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about what's on the bottom of the ocean. And yet we look at ourselves and we think that we are the sum of all knowledge. And in our culture, people put a lot of faith in in human learning, in those that we credential in a variety of ways. And we look at our own understanding and we think, you know what, in some sense, or maybe I could even put it this way, we think that we have control over this creation in a way that we do not have control over this creation. And one of the things that I see in our particular culture right now, or our generation right now, is a desire to be thought of as God. As a, it's, it's a desire to be thought of as sovereign over everything around us. Sovereign over our own lives, sovereign over our own thinking, sovereign over our own circumstances. I don't know if you've ever been to a parade. I'm assuming most of us have. But when you're at a parade, what do you see when you're at a parade? You see what's going on right in front of you in that very moment. So if somebody asks you what's going on at this end of the parade at that very moment, or at this other end of the parade, what do you see? Or what can you answer? You might give them a guess, but you can't see it. And yet here you have our Lord who is omniscient, who sees eternity past and eternity future and the very present. He has a perspective that we don't have. We see a limited moment in history, a very brief moment in history. You get a few decades, you see a little bit in that. And we treat ourselves like we know everything. And I look at this group of leaders and I think that that's essentially where their hearts were at. 
Instead of worshiping the one who gave them knowledge, they looked at their own knowledge and said, let's worship ourselves. Instead of honoring Christ who was right there in their presence, they said, you know what? He confronts us because we're full of ourselves, and he tells everybody we're full of ourselves, and we don't like that because he's making us look bad in front of the people that we want to look good in front of, and so let's get rid of the threat. Instead of listening to the truth, let's get rid of the truth teller. And yet Jesus is still willing to, to forgive someone whose heart has been hardened against him like that. How do we know that? Well, look at, look at uh, the, the plurality of books written in the New Testament. Who were they written by? Many of the books written in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, who at this point would have been with this group, at least in spirit, and affirming everything that they were doing against Jesus and saying, yeah, I absolutely agree with the Sanhedrin. I agree. What they're doing against him, I absolutely agree. And then later on, what happens? Christ confronts him and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul's eyes are ultimately open and his heart is softened. Jesus is willing to forgive those who once failed to believe in him. He actually shows us one other thing here that I think is interesting, and I, I hope we could rejoice in this together as well, because Jesus is willing to forgive those who once condemned him. When you look at verses 69 through 71, you see an example of this condemnation. It says, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Don't you love the way he keeps responding to them? Do you think that they enjoyed those responses, or do you think they irritated them even more? They said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. I shared this story before. I'm going to share it again. Uh, it's a story about a man named John. Not me. This is not biographical. Different John. Uh, but he was driving home pretty late one night, and he picked up a hitchhiker. Has anyone ever picked up a hitchhiker? It's usually not advisable, all right? Um, and as they rode along, he started to get a weird feeling about this passenger that he had picked up. And so he checked to see if his wallet was where he thought his wallet was. His wallet, he, he believed, was in his coat, and he set his coat in between the two of them, and he kind of reached over to find his wallet and uh, reached into the pocket where he kept it, and he noticed that it wasn't there. And so he slammed on his brakes, and he ordered the hitchhiker out of the car, and he said, hand over the wallet immediately. The guy reached into his pocket, handed him the billfold, and then John drove off, and then when he, when he drove home, he started to tell his wife about this, and she said, oh, before you, before you get into whatever story you're about to tell me, uh, did you know that you left your wallet here this morning? Like, how did you make it through the day? <laughs> I read that in Our Daily Bread recently. I thought, oh, that's pretty funny. And you look at the accusation, so you have this guy accusing someone of something, right? The accusation and the condemnation that Jesus received in this particular context, it was undeserved. He was being accused of something that he did not do. Christ was sinless. He had done nothing wrong. The entire case that the Sanhedrin made against him, it was based on telling them the truth about his identity. So he's telling them the truth about his identity, and then they would deny the truth of his claim and say that because he's telling them these things, that he must be blaspheming, because it couldn't possibly be true. But not only did Jesus confirm to them that he was the Christ, 
He also made it clear that he was the Son of Man and the Son of God at the same time. And he said that he would be seated at the right hand of the power of God. These are things that he made it clear to them. He was pointing out to them that he was the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I don't know if you've ever read that portion of Scripture. I'll read it for us. It says this. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is, even in his words and in the things that he's doing, he's fulfilling a portion of this portion of Scripture. But of course, instead of rejoicing over his appearing, you have the Sanhedrin here, rejoicing instead in an opportunity to condemn him. And at this point, they considered their case all wrapped up because now they felt like they had the ammunition that they needed to be able to accuse Jesus of the capital offense of blasphemy because they're looking at what he said and they're, they're, they're talking about it amongst themselves and they're saying, look, he's clearly equated himself with God and in their understanding, this was deserving of death. And yet you look at what Jesus is willing to do, and even the, their condemnation is something that Jesus is more than capable to forgive. But because, he didn't, or because they didn't believe that he was who he said he was, and they didn't even seem remotely interested in experiencing the forgiveness that Christ offers, that's not something that they laid hold of in that moment. Those who are conscious of their mockery or their disbelief or their condemnation of Christ those that become very aware of those things also tend to be the people who are most appreciative of, their, of his offer to forgive them of those things. There's an interesting account given to us in Luke chapter 7 that shows us what it's like to appreciate the depth of Christ's forgiveness. In the background of this, there happened to be a Pharisee at the particular time who invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And I often wonder, you know, when you look at these instances where you have Pharisees, these religious leaders that are interacting with Jesus, even early in his public ministry, you wonder what they're up to. You wonder what their motives are. Are they genuinely curious? Are they trying to accuse him? I think in most cases they were trying to accuse him, but I I do see some instances that make me wonder if there was some genuine curiosity there. And that portion of Scripture tells us that in the midst of that context, a woman basically interrupts that dinner and, uh, and she starts crying and wiping off Jesus' feet with her hair and anointing his, his feet with, with oil. And the Pharisee is just utterly disgusted at what he's seeing, that Jesus would associate with this woman. And he's basically like, you know what, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know the background that this woman has. He would know how dark her past really is. He would know all the mistakes that she's made, all the shameful things that she's done. He would know her reputation in this community. And so you have the Pharisee throwing this dinner, and he's just absolutely disgusted at this scene, as this woman is making such a scene over Jesus, and Jesus doesn't seem to be opposed to it. He seems seems, uh, appreciative of it. He seems to honor it. And this Pharisee's looking at this, and he's disgusted by it. And in Luke chapter 7, verses 47 to 50, in the midst of that context, Jesus says this as he's talking about what's going on right there in front of him. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now think about that that sentence just for a second. I think sometimes we try to go through life almost pretending like we don't need the forgiveness of Christ. 
And do you know that I actually think that that could drive your mind crazy? That if you go through your life living in some sort of a falsehood, where you're telling yourself that there isn't something that, that is hurtful or, or dark or, or even shameful, if you go through your life just basically living in denial of something that's actually true, that you're actually doing damage to your physical brain and your spiritual life. I actually think it damages us on multiple capacity, or in multiple ways, multiple capacities. After years of counseling, one of the things that I have noticed when I've been trying to work with people in counseling is that people that are willing to finally get to a spot where they just own whatever it is that they want to own or that they need to own, that's when they actually have victory over it. That's when they actually get past it. It's when people live in denial for decade after decade after decade that they basically just live with this thing that, that whatever the thing is, they just kind of live with it there and they never get to this spot where they confess and release it over to the Lord. And it just becomes this lifelong burden that over time ends up driving them crazy and sometimes driving those who are trying to help them crazy as well. And here you have this woman. Obviously, she's lived a life that's not exemplary. Okay, well, here she is. She comes to Christ, and you could see repentance demonstrated in her actions. And I'll read it again. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many... There's a million things here we can list. That's, that's understandable. But he says, these things are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, by the way, that right there is one of those statements that you, you could have the religious leaders looking at this and saying, wait a second, why is he saying this? Why is he saying your sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins? God forgives sins. What's he indicating to people as they're observing what's going on? It's like, I'm showing you in this visible object lesson right now as I interact with this woman who's crying and is weeping. I'm telling you now that I have the power to forgive sin. He says, your sins are forgiven. And then it says, then those who are at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She didn't have peace prior to meeting Christ. She was actually trying to find peace like most people in this world try and find peace. How do most people in this world try to find peace? Through whatever the world offers us. And the world promises you and me peace through all sorts of things. You'll have peace if you, if you take your life in this direction or, or welcome this substance into your body or uh, just give yourself over to this unhealthy relationship or consume this, uh, this, whatever this is that the world is offering you. This world gives us all these false promises of peace. And this is a woman here who has spent her life, apparently up to this point, believing those lies, thinking that those are the things that were going to bring her peace. And now you have the day where she finally finds peace. She's able to go from that table. She's humiliated herself in front of everybody there because she's wiping off Christ's dirty feet with her hair, and kissing his feet and crying on his feet and anointing his feet. Total mess. She's wearing the filth that was on his feet in her hair. And she's willing to do it. Just as this act of humility before Christ. This is her moment where she's just professing faith in Christ. She gets it. She gets who he is. He's right there in her midst. 
And I think in her mind, she's thinking, how can anyone be sitting there so stoically and so smugly at this meal with him and not acknowledging who he actually is? And so she does it for him. And at this point, too, she's in the perfect spot to do it because she's already saying, I have no reputation. Whether I get filth in my hair and I cry in front of everybody, it doesn't matter. They don't like me anyway. They think I'm terrible. What a blessing to have no reputation in that moment. But those with reputations, what do they do? They cautiously look and they cast judgment on the event because they're so perfect, right? They're so righteous in their own minds that they don't even need Christ's intervention. At least that's what they think. And Christ makes the comment. He says, look, he who is forgiven little loves little. Meaning, if you don't think you have anything that you need forgiven... Why would you love someone who offers to forgive you? You didn't really think you needed to be forgiven in the first place. But here in this context, her sins were many are forgiven. And she loves much because she realizes the transformation Christ has just done in her life. And I take us back to our concept tonight as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion together and just thank Christ for what he's done. If Christ can forgive mockery, if he can forgive disbelief, if he can forgive condemnation, and if he can forgive the many sins of this woman who's lived a life of immorality, is there anything too great in your life that he cannot also forgive? I'm so glad that you're here. That this evening we have the opportunity to just carve out time and just think about these things for a minute. Whether you're someone who's known the Lord for years or whether you've never met the Lord. You have the opportunity to hear these words and to see what Christ is offering. We have the opportunity to think about these things tonight. And what a blessing that is. It's a night for us to just kind of get out of, get out of our own way and just say, Lord, you were willing to come to this earth and endure humiliation and scorn and suffering and pain and shame so that I could be forgiven. So what holds us back from receiving that forgiveness? Usually, it's because we're just so proud of ourselves, and we want to sit like some of those stoic people at the table that don't want to admit that we've got something that needs to be forgiven. And Christ looks at us and he says, I'm offering you this forgiveness. Are you willing to let your hair get a little dirty with humility to just be able to accept that you actually need it? We need it. And this is a night where we get to set aside and say, Lord, we need it. I need your forgiveness. We need his forgiveness. A small percentage of people in this world will receive his forgiveness. Christ says that the gate and the road, it's narrow. Most people are not looking for him. Scripture says directly, we were not looking for him. He came looking for us. So he offers it to us. Will we receive his forgiveness? He can forgive it all. You look at all this, he's forgiven you know, he could forgive this mockery, he could forgive this disbelief, this condemnation, this immorality. I don't know what category you'd put yourself in. Probably one of those. And he could forgive it all. You know, again, think of the words that he said on the cross as he's looking at the people mocking him and participating in all this. And he looks at, you know, he just, he just contemplates it. And in prayer, he speaks to the Father and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea. And yet, what does mankind go through? Their, what do we go through our lives thinking that we have? 
We think we have an idea. And he's like, no, you have no idea. There's so much you haven't seen. There's so much you don't know. You haven't even fully explored your own planet. And yet you think you understand the depths of, of humanity and the depths of the universe, the depths of wisdom, the depths of holiness. You don't know it yet. But we come to know it when we meet Christ. And we spend our earthly lives growing in, in a relationship with Him and growing in wisdom with Him. And then we have the privilege to spend eternity learning and learning and seeing and seeing even more. So I just want to finish with this this evening. If you've come to that spot of humility where you're able to get out of your own way and, and receive the, the forgiveness of Christ, I'd like tonight to be a night where you just thank Him for it again. And remember where you were when He found you and where He's brought you. And if you're at a spot where these are claims that you're still a little skeptical about, I want to just encourage you to just ask, even if you're not even 100% sure that God exists, I just want to throw out a dare. If he's real, ask him to convince you of it or to convince you that he's not. Ask him to lead you in the direction of truth. I dare you to pray to a God that you might not even believe in yet. And just see what happens. See what happens to either convince you of the truth that he's there or to convince you that he's not there. Test him in this. See what happens. But if he convinces you that he's there, receive the gift that Christ came to this earth to pay for for you. He endured a lot to pay for it. Receive it with joy. And allow him to transform you just as he transformed this woman and just as he's transformed all who have trusted in him throughout the centuries. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to think about what you're demonstrating in the variety of Scriptures that we've looked at together this evening. Lord, we see those who have hardened their hearts against you. They mocked you. They despised you. They went their own direction. They just wanted to, in some ways, trap you in your own words and elevate their own wisdom above you. And we also see an example in Luke 7 of just humble faith. A woman who was just willing to say, you know what? I think I've tried all the options and none of them work. And all it's done is destroy my life up to this point and destroy my reputation. And, and it's never filled the void that I was looking for it to fill. And then, Lord, we see that as she interacted with your son, that she was able to leave that encounter with the peace that her heart was longing for. So, Father, I pray that you would grant us that peace, that we would find that peace through your Son. And, Lord, we know that this is an evening where we as believers in your Son have the opportunity to, to participate in the Lord's Supper. We participate in communion together. We remember the body and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, given on our behalf. And we remember the price that was paid so that we could experience the forgiveness that's been given to us as an act of grace. So again, Lord, for those who know you, we pray that tonight would be a night that we would acknowledge these things and rejoice over them. And we pray, Lord, that if 
there be anyone in my hearing this evening who as of yet does not know you, that they would kind of test these things, that they would reach out to you, and even just test and see if you, if you respond in some way. Lord, we have seen over the course of the, the centuries, we've seen you work in so many hearts that were so distant from you and so unbelieving for a season. And then we've watched as those hearts have become con completely convinced of your presence and your reality. And Lord, we're just so grateful for the privilege that it is to know you. We're grateful, Lord, for those that you allow to experience salvation at a young age and that they get to go throughout the course of their earthly life anchored to you, anchored to your experience of peace that you've offered to them. We thank you, Lord, for those that come to know you later in life. As they think about these things, that they could testify to the fact that, the, that what this world was offering didn't work. And they've tried it all. But you transformed their heart. You gave them hope for the future. You gave them life where they were walking in death. So Lord, we're grateful for all these things. And now we pray that in our time of fellowship as we partake of communion together, that you'd help us to remember all that your son endured to pay for our sin so that we could be cleansed of it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we partake of communion together, I'd just like to invite us to just spend a few moments in silent prayer and just ask the Lord to search your heart and to show you what He needs to show you in that moment. If there's something you need to confess, confess it. If there's someone you need to forgive, forgive them. If there's help or wisdom that you're seeking from Him, ask for it. But certainly in the midst of our, our time of prayer, let's also just Thank him for the work that he accomplished on the cross. So let's just pray silently for a moment. Lord, thank you again for the reminders that you surround us with this evening. And Lord, we pray that as we partake of communion together now, that we would be mindful of the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We thank you for the mockery he was willing to endure and the shame that he was willing to endure, the scorn that came in his direction, the crown of thorns placed upon his head, the nails in his hands and feet, the beating that his back took, the sword that pierced his side, the insults that came from one of the thieves on one side, but also the worship that came from a thief on the other side. Lord, we're just grateful for this reminder. We pray that it would never be far from our thinking. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at our lives, that we would have a sense of humility about it, recognizing that we were lost and you intervened. You found us. We were distant, and you brought us close. And so we're grateful for the price that was paid so that we could have 
a full and joyful and peaceful relationship with you. So remind us of these things, we pray, and help us to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.